Welcome to episode 240 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, today, uh, we're going to be doing an interview with Mika Yoyang, who's the vice president for the National Security Program at Third Way and the co-author of a new report that we'll be talking about, To Catch a Hacker Toward a Comprehensive Strategy to Identify, Pursue, and Punish Malicious Cyber Actors. Uh, uh, fascinating uh, uh, take on uh, uh, the cyber issue and uh, uh, one that has good points and bad. Uh, uh, Mika, welcome. Thank you for having me, Stuart. It's a pleasure. Also, for the News Roundup, uh, we're joined by Maury Schenk. Uh, Maury is the former managing partner of our London office and advises us on European technology and cybersecurity issues. Maury, great to have you here. Great to be here, Stuart. And Dr. Megan Reese, uh, who's the Senior National Security Fellow at the R Street Institute and many other titles that I'm going to skip over, Megan, because we can't do this all the time. Uh, uh, but <laughs> welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> and uh, Matthew Hyman, uh, who's a visiting scholar at the National Security Institute, formerly with the National Security Division at the Justice Department. Matthew? Thank you, Stuart. Always and, good to be here. Yes, uh, it's great to have you. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Uh, uh, why don't we start with Russia? Um, in theory, it's a great idea to sue uh, foreign governments that uh, intrude into American uh, cyberspace and do bad things. Um, and the D Democratic National Committee is doing exactly that. They're suing the Russians for having hacked them and embarrassed them on the world stage and maybe cost them the election. Um, but uh, the Russians, or at least through their diplomatic service, are starting to make that a little less easy to win, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They they filed a, you could either call it a letter or a brief, um, in which they assert as a threshold matter, the court doesn't have jurisdiction over the Russian government because they are a sovereign right. and they enjoy, they enjoy sovereign immunity. And essentially, they use the Democratic National Committee's complaint, which appended the unclassified intelligence committee, intelligence community report on Russian activity in the U.S. related to the 2016 election and special counsel Mueller's indictment of various Russian actors. They append that to the DNC complaint, and the Russians very cleverly say, aha, it seems that you believe these are all directed by the Russian military. Of course, those are sovereign arms. of What, what could be more sovereign yeah. than our military? And, and if these are military activities, uh, you can't file civil suits against us. And then they go on to state, and by the way, America does this all the time, and you wouldn't want to get civil suits against you and, all over the world. And they cite a lot of open source stuff. Basically, uh, there's a, a not-so-veiled threat that the, there will be lawsuits against the U.S. government for yep. all the things that NSA does. Uh, um, and they they actually take apart the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act mm -hmm. defenses in a moderately persuasive way. Yeah. I, I So – under that uh, act, there are two broad exceptions that get you out from sort of your sovereign immunity shield. One, you're acting as a commercial actor. So you could imagine if Venezuela, through its Sitco gas stations, were ripping people off or selling them rubbing alcohol instead of petroleum, uh, you might be able to bring a commercial claim against uh, Venezuela. Uh, the other one is tort, obviously. The and, and I, you know, it's it's hard to see what the Russians did to the DNC as a commercial activity. Yeah, uh, right. I, I'm not sure how I would have made money unless they had bets on the election. Uh, uh, so it's got to be the tort exception. And so the Russians' response to that is, well, a no real tort has happened here. And this is the one that I think is kind of the weaker read in their argument, which is they say, we didn't ruin any of the information you have. We didn't take it away. We just made it public. So we didn't do any damage to you. Exactly. Uh, you've uh, suffered no uh, harm. Yeah, that's um, But the other argument, which I think is a fair one, um, they get down to kind of this venue argument where they say, even if you think this is a tort, you've sued us in the district court of uh, the Southern District of New York. If anything, your your harm happened in D.C. and Northern Virginia. Wrong uh, venue. Bounce it out of here. But, and they went to the, they they didn't want to go to D.C. because there's that you know kind of dumb Ethiopian decision in which right. they said the whole tort must occur in the uh, United States, and that means if you have somebody in Ethiopia who is planning the tort or 
sends the malware to the United States where it does its harm, that uh, that means the whole tort didn't occur in right. uh, the United States. Uh, um, so they were hoping for a better result from the Second Circuit. So yeah, it, it it does not sound good for this case, and maybe not so good for uh, deterring uh, cyber espionage. If you're uh, hoping to get uh, countries to sober up about how much cyber espionage they do, I I, I would have loved to have a an FSIA exception yeah. that allowed you to go at least after people who were stealing commercial secrets for commercial purposes. I think that's right. I think the other thing it's a reminder of is that civil litigation is not a panacea for all issues, and it forces you to think even more carefully about how do you effectuate deterrence if civil litigation and public embarrassment is not really an option. And it takes us back to the much more complicated issues of hack back and uh, using cyber weapons. And I know it's much easier to file a a complaint, uh, but I think it's just a reminder that there are certain problems, just like a military invasion, that you can't fight with a lawsuit. There is, there is at least one case that I'm looking forward to more than uh, the DNC case against the Russians, and that's the U.S. case against uh, Julian Assange. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, um, can you tell us how we found out that there's going to be an Assange case? Well, the the prosecutors, the the AUS, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of Virginia, made a filing in a case unrelated to Assange, referring to the need to keep the charges against him sealed. Re it appears that the filing was made completely in error. Um, that the, the case, the other case, has some national security dimensions, but it appears that maybe just the same AUSA was working on the two cases and filed it in the wrong place but actually don't you think i my guess is that this is a, you know that we're, uh, to find a cyber law connection to this case this was a, just a cyber mistake uh he already had prepared the sealing motion which is pretty general uh in the assange case and then he got a new case and he said oh i i all the law is the same i'll just change the name and he forgot to do global replace he did rep uh, uh hunt and replace on the first page or two and uh didn't catch all the assanges in the document and somebody finally read it and said hey wait a minute that's what this looks like to me uh, and that tells me that assange does have a sealed indictment pending yeah i think that's right i mean there's nothing in the public reporting on this that suggests any actual linkage of this, the case in which it was filed to Assange. So I think it was that kind of computer error. God, that really has got to hurt. Uh, <laughs> you wonder, what happens when you realize you did that? You want to go down to the court and just sneak all the copies out of the docket or something, uh, it, uh, but there's no way to do it. Uh, it's, I, if, you, if you file something saying, I've got a substitute motion, everybody wonders why you did it. Uh, yeah, that's right. And um, it's going to be it's interesting. This is relevant, obviously, because he's sitting here in the UK to to people here. I think there's very little question that um, if he ever steps out of the embassy here, uh, that there is that the UK police are going to be ready to arrest him. It's um, so I, my impression is the Brits are as sick of him as the Ecuadorians must be. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was trying thinking about this and wondering what it must like be like inside the embassy every day. Him getting up and holy shit, that guy's still here. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, I, I know it's 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 grim and it's very hard on him. I'm sure, uh, but he can leave anytime he wants. It's just that he's going to, uh, you know, he he would have been better off coming to the United States and taking a four year sentence. Uh, he'd be free by now. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, it just goes to show uh, the uh, the way the politics of this have played out. If if he had not uh, so enthusiastically trashed Hillary Clinton, he'd have defenders on the left. But he doesn't have any defenders on the left, and he never had defenders on the right. And he's just basically blown any support that uh, uh, might have uh, uh, viewed him as a sympathetic character. Uh, and I, you know, yes, there'll be a few reporters who say, well, isn't he a journalist? He just published true facts. He's being prosecuted for true facts. Uh, we'll start to hear that once he gets here. But uh, I don't think there's much sympathy for him. And I don't think that's going to get a lot of traction. Yeah, it's it's and it's going to be interesting to see how and when this ends, because I think that's basically how it plays out. 
but the physical dimension of him being in the embassy when he comes out, whether he decides to take your advice and just uh, face the charges is a very complex dimension that could, uh, could go on for many more years. Well, it's, you know, frankly, uh, I'll be happy to serve popcorn while it it goes on because he can move into a a, a British jail for a while as he fights extradition uh, uh, and then come to the United States and spend time in our uh, uh, prison system. Uh, It's really a a world tour for, for Julian Assange. Okay, Amazon has a new service. Um, If you are murdered, they will protect the privacy of your murderer. Uh, by demanding that 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 uh, <laughs> in order to get access to uh, anything that might be on Alexa, uh, uh, the um, the government has to go get a, uh, a court order. Uh, actually, this is a double murder, and uh, uh, the um, uh, prosecutors have asked for all of the records that Alexa might have, uh, and they had no trouble getting a, a, a judicial order. Um, so I, I actually think this pro- might be less newsworthy than the coverage it got. Uh, there was never any doubt that they we're going to get a, uh, a uh, uh, an order, uh, and uh, um, no reason for – Amazon to do this without some kind of order that will give them uh, legal protection. Uh, um, uh, but it would have been awkward. In, in other cases, they have filed things saying, oh, we're not going to hand this over because we're protecting the privacy of our users. In this case, it was the owner of the um, device who was uh, murdered along with a, a second person. Uh, I, and so there was nobody that they could take that stand on behalf of other than the the murderer. So they quite wisely apparently did not even file. They just said, well, we'd like to see the order first. Here's some international cyber news that really doesn't have the United States in it. Uh, But uh, 50 countries and companies got together in Paris and uh, signed up to a whole bunch of principles. Uh, uh, Megan, uh, um, what do you think of this Paris call, I guess it's called? So my take on this is that if you have the major cyber powers not engaging on an international agreement or norms agreement, then it probably doesn't mean all that much. So this was basically some European countries and and not the Chinese, not the Russians, and of course, a bunch of companies uh, Mm -hmm. uh, who love the idea that they're sitting as some some kind of equal uh, alongside the countries. Uh, This has, of course, been uh, uh, Microsoft's view of itself for a long time. We'll present a digital Geneva convention. Yes. This is not the digital Geneva convention, though. It doesn't look like much like what their president was putting forward, does it? No, there's a lot of there's a lot of questions that come out of this. And I think one that the cyber law community is going to have to grapple with is where do norms in international law actually come from? Can you just say, this is what we do? And then all of a sudden, every country is going to align with it, and you're going to be able to enforce international law. Well, that's where it, I'm sure their view is uh, it comes from the same place that regular yeah. laws come well, from. The, 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 the companies with the biggest budget get the laws it, that they want. It reminds me a little bit of the nuke community and a bunch of countries saying, okay, we're going to ban all nuclear weapons. We're just not going to include Russia or the U.S. <laughs> in the conversation right. and then hoping that it works. Like it's, it's a little bit where the U.S. and some of these other countries are going to have to actually agree to this. And it includes some things that Congress is grappling with. So Congress has been talking about hacking back and what that should actually look like. And this includes a provision that said that we're going to keep companies from hacking back. That well, was the one thing I saw in there that mm-hmm. I said, well, this is this is dumb. Yeah. But the rest of it was, you know, it's kind of hard it's, to argue it's with, right? It's pretty normal. It's mostly stuff that the U.S. already agrees with. Um, I think the, the, the non-official response from the U.S. government is something to the extent of, well, we're really grappling with what the use of offensive cyber weapons looks like. And maybe we shouldn't sign on to international agreements that we may not actually agree with five years from now. So we don't do it. So, yeah, I I suspect there was an NIH element there, right, not invented here. And maybe not wanting to treat um, Microsoft as a foreign nation with whom they have to (laughs) negotiate. Uh, uh, Yeah, because generally it's not offensive. It's a fine 
it's, it's sort it's of yes, right exactly uh, it, it's uh, it's warm porridge uh, yeah. uh, okay uh, I, I sort of agree with you on that uh, the US and Russia meanwhile have gone to <laughs> the, the, to the UN to, to arm wrestle over uh, their uh, particular oh, warm goodness. porridge yes so Russia and the US are trying to present what they call dueling proposals to the UN Committee on Disarmament and International Security, um, which again is global rules for the use of or for behavior in cyberspace. And shockingly, the U.S. proposal is getting more alignment from Western democracies and the Russian proposal is getting more alignment from Iran and China. Um, it's shaping out exactly how you would expect this to shape out in every way. Um, right. And now this, <laughs> presumably these were going to go to the GGE, I guess we call it, the, yeah. the, the group of experts. Uh, um, and that effort has already kind of come a cropper once in this administration. Aren't we just setting up uh, another uh, impasse? I potentially come on the side of, I think that, any big affirming behavior in cyberspace is going to come through someplace like NATO. It's not going to come through uh, uh, UN that needs to get sign on from Russia and China. It's just not going to happen. So anything that does result is going to be bad actors finally signing on and saying, yes, we're going to do that and ignore it immediately, which actually may reduce the likelihood of developing norms in cyberspace. I, in right, the end. Because then people say, well, then yeah, they're not, they're not living up to them. So yes. uh, uh, why should we adhere to exactly. these norms that they put that tried to impose on us? Exactly. Uh, uh, Mika, we're going to talk to you mm -hmm. about a whole bunch of international norm stuff and uh, uh, cooperation stuff. But uh, um, uh, your report actually doesn't call for any of these grand international bargains, does it? No, it doesn't. I mean, we think that norms emerge from state practice, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. norms are only as good as their enforcement. So mm -hmm. we're focusing on enforcement. Sounds good to me. I, I, I agree. Up, yeah, yes. go, we're, we're, we're all on board. To, I want them to be developed. I just think states are going to do it. Yeah, yes. that's pro probably right. And they're going to do it by what they do, not by what they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably right. Uh, um, so everybody has been worried about the Chinese social credit rank rating. Yeah. Uh, now there's some indication that uh, they're so proud of it, they're exporting it to Venezuela. Is that is that right? Is, 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 there was an enormous story <laughs> suggesting that that's what was going on in Venezuela. If 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 so, it's the only thing that Venezuela has been importing in the last two years. <laughs> Well, they've been importing it for a while now. But yeah, so of course, everyone in D.C. is very concerned about the social credit score, as I think they should be. The potential for human rights abuses associated with it are enormous. And what we're learning is all the predictions that people have been having over the last couple of years that China's authoritarianism and technology link is going to be exported along the Belt Road while we're seeing it in Venezuela. So they're exporting it to like-minded authoritarian regimes. And so you're seeing this um, people coming out concerned that they have a card similar to the social credit score, and they're presenting it when they go to the polling booth, for instance. Or maybe if they just want to get fed. Or Yes. And so how could they use this, this linkage between data and information and use it against civilians if they wanted to? And I think if you're a creative authoritarian regime, you can probably think of a few ways to punish people for their behavior. Yeah. Especially if, if there, there isn't enough food to go around. Yep. Right? Um, okay. Um, you know, this, it's like, this is the week, Mika, for, uh, sweet justice, uh, 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 sort of setting up your report. Uh, uh, this California guy who uh, uh, called in a swatting uh, uh, that left a man dead on his porch uh, uh, has been flown out to California uh, where he did the swatting, I guess, uh, uh, and um, pled guilty, going to jail for 20 years. It's cool. Yeah. I mean, this is an important reminder that behind these attacks, it's not just a faceless army of trolls or some computerized AI that's doing it on its own. There are actual people behind this who should be held accountable for their bad acts. Yeah. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's great. I, I he's such a jerk. Uh, you know, he, 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 
defended what he did, even after the guy died by saying, well, I didn't kill him. I, and and he's, he's such a jerk that it kind of reminds me of myself when I was 19. You know, the, the people are jerks at 19 or 24 or whatever he is. Uh, uh, and you do kind of wonder whether 20, you know, I, I sort of hope he has a chance to get out in 12 years uh, when he's grown up. But uh, it, uh, it, it was a shocking thing. Uh, amazing. They are finally going to rename DHS's Cybersecurity Administration. And for all the people who've been listening to the show who are sick of hearing about it, this is the last time President, uh, the, the, the bill has been passed, the House and the Senate. I don't think the president has signed it, but he will. Uh, and then the NPPD, which is the National Programs and Protection Directorate, will become the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Administration. And we will all know what it does. So uh, that's good news. Uh, um, the, the Italian police have given up on finding the guy who hacked hacking team. Uh, um, Megan, this one story, there's more stories about China telecom related hijacking mm-hmm. of data, this time Google data. Um, looks like it might be a fake or a, a, a mistake? Maybe, but the, the question, so references Google traffic was rerouted through uh, China and apparently the Nigerians were the problem. Um, I don't, I don't know when the big statement they, they, they've is. They've been told like, that they, they, actually... they get the inheritance from the prince yeah. if they just set the traffic. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Someone opened spam email. That's what happened. Um, no, I, I want to know, I want Google to explain more. I, I think I just don't understand what the repercussions of this are enough, how this could potentially happen, what, what things could be compromised as a result. There's just so much here. And it's just this like one off story that, oh, yeah, by the way, this happened for a couple hours. Yeah, and it's like the third time mm-hmm. we've had a story on this in the mm-hmm. last two weeks. Uh, and, and is this, is this, is this bigger than, I mean, if if I were wanting to do shows of force or showing my capabilities off a little bit, like this is the sort of thing I'd want to do, something that didn't have a long-term impact, but showed that someone was capable of doing something so interesting. So I'm, I'm more skeptical I because I think it's going to get, uh, it, China Telecom is going to get hammered over yeah. this. They've got 10 yeah. points of presence in the United States and, mm-hmm. and the U.S. has none in China, yeah. uh, you know, uh, if you're President Trump, uh, the solution is obvious, uh, and That's I would true. have thought that uh, they're all they, they've already gotten subpoenas from uh, the National Security Division saying, uh, "Just what the hell happened here?" <laughs> yes. uh, that's my guess. Uh, but you do want to know. What, I do want to know. Yes, uh, uh, because you know the the BGP security problems are notorious and that's what this is taking advantage of and we need to fix that too um but nothing galvanizes people like um, an actual abuse mm-hmm. it'll yeah. be interesting too to see if the sec takes an interest vis-a-vis google in yeah, terms says, of what sort of risk factors do they have in their disclosures and have they properly disclosed the risks around this bgp traffic so you know here's my guess uh, Google went through a long and kind of nasty process mm-hmm. of uh, NSA proofing their mm-hmm. traffic, to you know, as a yeah. sort of punishment for having a uh, lighthearted uh, smiley face on a on a PowerPoint slide. So taking their traffic probably gets you very little, if anything. I think that's true, but I think I think it'd just be I, I could imagine an enterprising uh, lawyer somewhere in the bowels of the SEC wondering if there isn't an issue here to pursue. Okay, no, fair enough. And finally, Matthew, uh, uh, does wiping your iPhone constitute obstruction of uh, uh, justice and destruction of evidence? Yes, when you're the alleged uh, a wheelman for a shooter in a murder, ah. and uh, all of a sudden your phone goes blank uh, while, it's in while the police custody, are right? asking for it. So yeah. yeah, or while they have it. So the answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, so the, the the only defense there is uh, well, I don't know what me uh, must be must be Apple. Tim Cook, call Tim Cook. Right. Right. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's turn to our interview. Uh, this will be fun. Uh, uh, Mika is the vice president for the National Security Program at Third Way. Uh, she wrote a report, uh, uh, co-authored a report uh, called To Catch a Hacker. Uh, and it's apparently the first in a series, which mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to because I, I, I kind of enjoyed this. Um, I, but let me ask you, for the, what's the elevator version of this uh, this report? Yeah, so the elevator version of this report is that often in cybersecurity – 
we focus on defense and we focus on the technology. Even when we're talking about hackback, we're talking about technological tools. At the end of the day, behind all of these cyber attacks, there's a human being who's making a decision to commit bad acts. Right. And so how do we go after that human? And we looked at the different options that the U.S. government has to go after the human and recognized that law enforcement is one of those places where it is currently not as focused on this question as we think they should be, given the ubiquity of technology and the scope and scale of the attacks that are happening. And many of the, these are very serious financial crimes. Um, and then when we looked at the challenges that law enforcement was facing, we recognized that a lot of the times the bad actor is not in the United States and law enforcement runs up against bureaucratic hurdles when they're trying to get to people who are in other countries. So it's law enforcement and diplomacy. How do they work together to try and get that bad actor put bracelets on them, get them away from the keyboard. In order to do that, we wanted to try and measure what the level of activity is on this. And so we went back and looked at all the cyber incidents that are reported to the FBI, measure that against how many law enforcement actions we could find. And so this is actually sort of new, right? It, yeah. it, nobody had had said, how are we doing in busting people who commit cyber crimes? That's right. And we found that out of every thousand cyber incidents in only – Three cases are you likely to see an arrest. So that's not so good. That's and it's not actually so good. worse. It's actually worse because as the FBI has estimated, only one in six cyber incidents are reported. So that's 15% on the 15% that are reported, we have a 0.3% enforcement rate. So we think with some additional attention to the problem, we can help the government be better at identifying these people. So and of those three people that are busted. Mm -hmm. How many get convicted? Conviction rates are even lower. I'd have to go back and look, but we're talking conviction rates in the single digits. I don't know if your your uh, listeners may have seen the Symantec advertisement in the New York Times. They talked about 150 arrests. Well, that's great, When, but then you think that there are 300,000 incidents reported right. annually to the FBI. Over the denominator, it doesn't look so good. Okay, so I agree completely with you on this. And the fact is we've, we've gotten so much better at attribution mm -hmm. um, that the things that used to be brick walls now have doors and windows in them that mm -hmm. uh, the law enforcement can get through. Maybe it's not so easy. Maybe they're 10 feet off the ground. But it's possible to do attribution and to think about um, uh, law enforcement solutions to this problem. But um, And that stri strikes me as – um, an advance in the dialogue. We really have not talked enough about finding law enforcement solutions or really uh, what I call attribution and retribution solutions, mm -hmm. whether it's law enforcement or not. Um, a, and this report does that. That's all you're focused on. So that, I think, is a really valuable contribution. That's right. We are trying to create another conversation within the cyber debate that is about these questions of law enforcement and what they can do and what we can do to improve them, how we can help them be better at this. Now, we've seen things like um, someone did a survey of cyber incidents that were looked at by cybersecurity researchers to uh, identify who had done it. And even in those cases, a very small percentage is actually acted upon by law enforcement. We've heard incidents of companies provide, doing their own attribution, turning that attribution over to law enforcement and seeing no arrests in those cases Ow. where they are giving over names. And so you have to really wonder, what's the capability of law enforcement? What's the priority of law enforcement? Where are the hurdles? We get that this is a very hard problem and that law enforcement may not be able to solve it on its own if people are, say, in hostile foreign countries like this DNC hack where mm -hmm. the Russians are claiming sovereign immunity to protect these people. We get that there are some instances that are hard. But just because it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't be looking for those opportunities to really lift the capability of law enforcement generally. Yeah, I, it's hard to believe that local and state law enforcement is ever going to be able to to do this. They don't do much of it now. Mm -hmm. And all of these things are federal crimes. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is federal authority. Uh, um, is there really any expectation that we're going to get state and local authorities up to the point of being able to pursue these cases on a regular basis? I don't know that it makes sense to have them do that, given that these are crimes at scale. And so lo local law enforcement may be seeing something that's happening in a 100 or a 1,000 right. other places across the United States. That doesn't mean that there isn't a role for local law enforcement when they get the call 
from a victim. And what are they doing about helping to preserve evidence, helping to hand that over, helping to feed it into broader statistics so that we can actually draw some of these patterns? There are some serious questions about that and whether or not they're capable of doing that. And then what is the federal government's role in ensuring that they are capable of doing that because so much of this expertise resides at the federal level? Well, I, I that all makes sense. Um, so I completely agree with you that this is a this is a, an appropriate place to focus on. It hasn't gotten enough attention. Uh, we have more tools than we used to in terms of attribution. Um, but what actually can we do? You know, uh, you you're uh, I, this is where I think you know your uh, your report does a lot deserves a lot of praise for focusing on this. I'm less convinced that it has come up with really good policy options for um, advancing the attribution and retribution uh, uh, tool. That's right. And it's not intended to. This is a foundational document to set out areas for further study for us. So we are not claiming that we are putting forward inaction-ready policy solutions with this report. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we promised a number of our board members that we hadn't that we wouldn't do that because we feel like there are a lot of areas where we need to do further research to make sure that solutions are implementable by law enforcement that make sense um, and that can be actually used. You know, as a former congressional staffer, I know that often congressional policy recommendations, you know, are big and bold, but have all these hidden consequences. So we wanted to try and think those things through. So yes, it is a lot of the policy areas that we're talking about are generic and high level. We that is intentional. So your board, you I, you, you advertise third way advertises itself as center left, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and um, it, it is reminiscent of the '90s and uh, the third way from uh, you know Blair and Clinton both were third way enthusiasts. Uh, although I hope that doesn't uh, poison your uh, uh, fundraising, um, uh, but. Uh, who's the board? Is the board people who are funding this board, uh, board of advisors? It's an advisory board because we recognize that this, you know, solving these problems requires a wide range of policy expertise mm-hmm. that we as the staff at Third Way do not have. So we wanted to gather some advisors who have are those the much people more that in the weeds. list at the front of the report? Yes. Okay. Those are the people that we list at the front of the report who have experience in diplomacy, in law enforcement, are computer crimes experts, who are academics, um, who are congressional experts, so that we can have a wide-ranging conversation that brings all of these perspectives into the mix. Okay. So uh, then let's, let's, let's sort of start exploring. I know you, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you haven't decided what you're going to do. So I'll lobby you on some of this stuff. Um, you say at every turn, there are not enough resources. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you think you're going to get those resources? So having spent a lot of time doing earmarks in the defense budget, mm-hmm. I, and knowing the difference in magnitude of funding, between what is absorbable in law enforcement to put to make things a priority versus what happens at DOD, we think that actually simply saying we need to put more resources to the problem and we need to protect the DOD or sorry the DOJ resources and FBI resources that are there. We need to protect the state resources that are there, um, and then look for modest increases is fine. You know the sort of the appropriations account. Allocations are made at a higher level, but by calling out these things as priority, we think we'll protect some of those accounts. But I think actually the amounts of money that you would talk about shifting are so small that DOD would lose them in their couch cushions. And meanwhile, DOJ would choke on trying to eat them all. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, so it's the usual center left solution. Uh, DODs are piggy bank, uh, and, and uh, we can we can pay for this uh, uh, with the rounding error in the uh, DOD budget. Um, and I'm not going to tell you that's absolutely wrong. The, the Cyber Command is not a, uh, uh, a sacred cow. I mean, we uh, could take it from Space Force. <laughs> yeah, if you could find it. Uh, uh, okay. Um, th- th- all that's going to do is you can hire more agents, right? Uh, uh, you can train them better. So it's not just about hiring more agents. So one of the things that we saw that was interesting and we're thinking about this as a, you know, whether or not this makes sense is that, for example, Secret Service has an attitude that every agent should be cyber capable. 
right? That yes. every agent should have some capability in being able to investigate these crimes. FBI does not take their attitude, that attitude with their agents. And, you know, in the category of every Marine as a rifleman, if you decide to prioritize certain skill sets and make it Right, make everyone more capable. Then you have a larger workforce to so choose I, from. I, I agree with you on that. That that has always been the Se- Secret Service has prided itself ever since it got into cell phone fraud to, uh, mm-hmm. uh, early on, and uh, you know because it uh, works frequently with uh, financial institutions because of its institutional heritage. Uh, it sees a lot of hacking and gets called on a lot uh, for a lot of hacking, uh, but. You know, uh, to be candid, haven't they just lost the turf battle with the FBI already? No, they actually haven't. And Director Comey testified in front of Congress about Secret Service's capability in this area. They have a very robust training program. Um, but I happen to think a little interagency competition about this is good for business. It okay. keeps people on their so toes. So you, you would say maybe we should have a system in which we ask people, ask each agency, so show us your stats. Yes, uh, you know, I show that you, us that you've actually caught people and busted them. Yeah, uh, and uh, you will be reward, rewarded at budget time. Yes, and one of the things that we found interesting, and in going back and looking at the FBI budget, is that they set case targets in every other area of criminal activity of how many they intend to make. And they don't do it in this area. So we don't actually have a good sense of how much it costs the FBI to make one of these cases. We recognize that these are more technologically sophisticated and maybe more difficult and therefore more expensive. But they internally should be able to have some estimate of how much it's going to cost them on average to make these cases and set some targets and let us know how they're going to do on them. The other thing, and you saw this in the Alexa case we were talking about earlier. So I, 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 I'll just stop. And my experience with law enforcement budgeting approaches mm-hmm. is to find something that the budgeteers want and to say, all of our agents are busy. If you want more of that, you need to give us money for more agents uh, uh, without ever explaining what their agents are busy on. So it's, it's a, it's just a constant kind of ratchet. Uh, uh, what I already have, I'm already using. Uh, if, if you've got priorities, tell me what the priorities are. I'll earmark it for a year or two or three, and then they'll become mine and I'll, you'll have to pay me again. So. That may be true that that's the sort of budget game that people are playing. But when you're setting basic case targets in other areas like white collar crime mm-hmm. and right money laundering and all these other things, you can set case targets. You tell us how much you can do. And then we can – then the you know congressional folks or political folks or folks at OMB can say that's enough or that's not enough and I want you to raise your targets and I'm going to resource you appropriately for that. But they don't – do that. And in fact, what we've seen in looking back at the numbers of the government's own reporting is that they are actually less transparent about what they are doing today than they were five, ten years ago. When you go back and look at the IC3 reports that the FBI used to put out on internet crime, they used to have much more granularity about where the bad actors were located and what kinds of incidents these were and what the value of them is. They don't do that anymore. So John Carlin is not on your uh, uh, board. He, I'm I've started to read his book, uh, uh, and uh, he said when he wanted to prosecute uh, 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 some state actors, uh, uh, particularly the Chinese, uh, and he went out to U.S. attorneys, they all said, I don't have anybody for this. Uh, this is you know, basically a wild goose chase. You're going to take my some of my good people, and they're going to spend two years coming up with an indictment, and they won't get to try it. Uh, uh, and and so it's an enormous resource suck without the advantage of being able to, you know, uh, do the sack dance when you bust the guy. Uh, um, and isn't that a problem with the stats here too? That these are enormous efforts, uh, especially against uh, uh, state actors, where you're just not going to get an arrest. Yeah, I think that that um, there are challenges with the state actors. But what we've seen in a number of these incidents, including the Yahoo hack, is sometimes these guys come out to play. And you put a red notice out them and you can pick them up somewhere else. But that requires you to engage the diplomatic process so that you're working with other governments. So when they decide, when their girlfriend decides that she wants a Mediterranean vacation, you have someone who can pick them up. Right. So we don't do enough of that. That said, there are a huge number of these. If you're going to do that, you've got to file it under seal. You can't, you can't have even one, you know, big moment where you announce the indictment. That's right. Well, and the challenge, then you can announce the arrest, though. But the the challenge on these things is they feel, and I'm sure Carlin had this experience, it's not like there is 
a playbook for these kinds of crimes, the same way that we have right. on money laundering or RICO. And if you start building up a cadre of these cases and you start rewarding people for taking the risk to on these cases and enforcing them by recognizing that these are hard and that people should get promoted for them, then the, you can think about ways of incentivizing career behavior by saying, right, to get to a certain level, you must have made one of these cases. If you told everybody in the FBI to make SES, you have to make one of these cases, watch the number of we, changes. Yes, we get a lot more we cases. We get a lot more cases. And frankly, aside from the state actors, there are a huge number of these cases that are financial crimes, right? That are actual completed crimes where people are losing their retirement savings mm-hmm. and other and their identities and paying huge financial costs. And we are not prosecuting those crimes. And we should be prosecuting those crimes. It's one of the few areas where a bad actor outside the United States can do actual harm to an American here in the United States. And we should not consider that acceptable. Law enforcement should be going after those people. So let me let me uh, uh, hop on my hobby horse on this. If you need resources, uh, the, the resources are sitting right there. The, Every company that is at risk of serious cyber attacks, certainly all the financial institutions we were just talking about, has spent boatloads of money, far more than the FBI will ever spend, uh, no matter what we do on this. Uh, uh, and we have said, you can spend all that money, but you have to spend it inside your network, period. Um, this makes no sense. If you want the, to free up resources to track people back, to find ways to bust them, um, you need to go where the resources are and you need to pers- per, uh, find ways to responsibly use resources that they would be enthusiastic about using if it meant that they were actually helping the government catch people that were attacking them. So, Stuart, I would be disappointed if you didn't raise Hackback. Mm-hmm. But let me just say, then you were encouraging companies to commit a CFAA violation. No, of no, their no. Of course own. not. You can, you're not going to tell and people to go violate about, that. But we're the, talking but the about can... essentially vigilante justice. What we have seen in talking oh, to companies. No, you're not. What we've seen in talking to companies is they are doing this kind of attribution. They are gift boxing for law enforcement. Mm-hmm. The people who are attacking them, they can do in some of these larger case, um, from the, some of these larger companies by name attribution of the bad guys, and they are not seeing prosecutions on that gift boxing. Law enforcement is the only agency that has the ability to arrest and try those people. No matter how many resources private sector has, they can't, they don't have the authority and they cannot do that. So I, I, I I'm not going to suggest that, that they should be sending uh, uh, teams to the Ukraine to pick people up. Uh, uh, though they, those would be some of the best resourced uh, 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 teams for extradition you've ever seen. Uh, and I agree with you if they have gift wrapped a set of identities. Uh, there ought to be a mechanism for identifying um, such cases and demanding accountability from the law enforcement agencies that they provided to. I mean, it would be fairly simple to ask GAO to study how many times private sector has turned over that information to law enforcement and what has happened to those cases. Mm-hmm. Because if law enforcement is not acting on cases where they have a known suspect, you have to ask why. You have to ask what are the obstacles, and then let's try and figure out how we resolve those obstacles. So, uh, so you're not against attribution of uh, uh, attackers uh, uh, by the private sector, so handing it over to law enforcement? No, but I don't think it should be uniquely private sector. I do think the government has to invest more in the attribution here because it shouldn't be that only the companies that can afford to do the attribution of their Attackers, yeah, I, I, of course. Right, are the only ones who get would, justice. It would be very good. Uh, yes. Um, but where they can, we should let them do it uh, rather than saying, why don't you wait in line behind the 400 other people who don't have the resources and we'll get to you in three years. Um, uh, but I, I, you know, the idea that you are authorizing by that you are telling people to violate the law is wrong they you can authorize people the uh, the the government has the authority under the CFAA to authorize the private sector to to uh, provide assistance uh, um so it wouldn't be a violation if it's authorized so i don't think that we have a problem of authorities here in getting the private sector to attribute but what we've seen is that they don't see the results from government in spending the money to do that so why would they invest tremendous resources 
into the attribution if it is if they aren't going to get futile. if they if they're not going to get a, a bust out of it and the and the guy isn't going right. to go to jail and, and stop then they hack, can't, hacking right. them and try Absolutely. and get some recovery for the lost assets right like that is the place where law enforcement can do something that no one else can do so that's this is a this is a case for congressional oversight if that is happening like I, you know, I'm sure that the people who gift wrap these packages and who complain to you are not going to be c- complaining quite so loudly if they think that it's going to get them in trouble with the FBI or the Secret Service. But uh, uh, congressional oversight can ask for information on that, and they can ask it in an informed way if they get uh, advice from Third Way and others about where to look. Uh, and they absolutely should. That uh, it, it's um, it's shocking. That, that people would not go after a case that's been presented in that fashion. Yeah, I mean, look, we don't know where the where the obstacles are and the hurdles are in these cases, right? Is it, and this is an important question, is it that law enforcement knows who the person is, but they can't get to them, or that they don't know who the person is? And depending on which of those two it is, that's in reported cases, you know, there are different solution sets and different policies that you would have to follow to, to get them to successful prosecutions. That doesn't deal with the num- large number of companies that never report because they feel like, why bother? I'm not going to get any action yeah, on yeah, this but, anyway. But, but, you know, that, that changes gradually as they see results, as, as they go to the club and somebody says, so, yeah, actually, they caught this guy that was hassling me. Exactly. So I, um, when you say law enforcement, there's, there's a, an odd construction here. You say we need more resources for um, law enforcement and diplomacy. Uh, what I thought was left out of that, but maybe not, uh, was treasury. I mean, if, if you're trying to reach somebody who's in another country, um, especially a country that we don't have the world's best relationship with, you're never going to get them extradited. So your best bet is to impose sanctions on that person. Uh, and that's treasury's job. Yeah. I think that treasury has a role to play in this, but I think when we're talking about attribution and we're talking about apprehension, Right. Those are things where law enforcement and diplomacy play lead role. And look, State Department has a huge role to play in sanctions as well. We're talking about sanctioning. So Treasury may implement the sanctions, but making decisions about who and where and what the incentives are and what the likely reactions are going to be, you know, part of that is you still really the want, State Department. You want, you want the State Department to do that? You think they're staffed for that? I no, don't no, think so. not for the implementation, obviously. Um, but we do mention sanctions in there. When we talk about a carrot and stick approach, what we mean is we have to think about where you cannot lay hands on the person, but a combination of carrots and sticks. Sticks meaning sanctions. Carrots, right? Can you offer people, can you offer rewards so that people's people's co-conspirators are going to turn them in, right? We've done this in the terrorism space. We don't do this as effectively yeah, I, I, in the cyberspace. That sounds so much like vigilante justice, like you're paying people to, to hack back. Rewards are a time-honored American <laughs> tradition. Back to the old West. I almost always vigilante justice, but uh, that's all right. So, uh, okay, I, 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 I see that. Um, let me ask you about uh, the State Department. Um, you've got some kind of an occasional shot, and you've been pretty good about not uh, just saying, oh, look, we're so much better than Donald Trump. Uh, uh, but there are a few shots at the Trump administration cutting uh, um, uh, foreign aid budgets, although I'm not sure the budgets are actually going to go down much. Uh, uh, and getting rid of the Chris Painter job of uh, uh, cybersecurity uh, diplomat to the world. Um we also think that the elimination of the White House cybersecurity coordinator was yes, a problem. Yes, right. I, I, but I think, you know, frankly, on these organizational things, you know, do we have a position with this name? Um, I, those things are given way more importance in Washington than they usually deserve. Uh, you can certainly run uh, a, a, a pretty aggressive cyber retaliation program without somebody whose job is uh, cyber czar. Uh, and you can do a lot of cyber diplomacy without somebody who is the cyber ambassador. Um, can you tell me what it is that Rob Strayer is doing that you think um, would be done better if he had a different title? Yeah. So I think one of the challenges that we see when we talk comes to the cyber diplomacy and specifically on the State Department side is that when you have someone who is below an ambassadorial rank, when they're sitting at the table with their international counterparts, they just don't have 
they just don't have the gravitas well, to be part of the conversation. It's pretty ironic because all those people got their ambassadorial rank in order to look like the U.S. ambassador that they were sitting next to in the old days. Be that as it may, yeah. right? There is something about having that rank in, as part of the conversation that matters. Now, look, could we have effective, you know, cross-governmental coordination at the White House level without a formal White House coordinator? Yes, but Stuart, do you really believe that this White House is capable of managing a complicated interagency process to solve this, given the disconnect between the president and his own intelligence so agencies I, on I, other topics? I, I hear you. I, I, I will return the favor and say, do you think that having somebody designated a cyber czar would change that? Not in this administration. There you go. So here's the, <laughs> which is why I think for the first couple of years of this initiative, we're really going to focus on congressional oversight. We think it's really important to map the challenges of the terrain, understand what's going on. You can build political will in other places than the White House. And because as you see in this report, we aren't very specific. This is a long-term plan for us to build out a set of comprehensive policies that would be in place for the next president of the United States so that that person perhaps has a different understanding of how the bureaucracy works, is more able to implement those things and move towards a much more set of comprehensive reforms. Okay. Well, so that means we're going to hear more from you. We're going to get more reports. We're going to have more conversations like yes. this. It'll be fun. This will be entertaining indeed. Uh, it's always a pleasure, Mika, to have you on. Uh, are you going to be announcing anything, having any events that people who are listening might want to hear about? I will keep you informed. We don't okay. have any public events currently scheduled, but we will definitely do a series of them over the coming year. Okay. Thanks to Mika Yoyang. Uh, thanks also to Maury Shank, uh, Dr. Megan Reese, uh, and uh, Matthew Hyman for joining me. This has been episode 240 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Be sure to send us uh, suggestions for guest interviewees so you can get the highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug, which I am now handing to Mika. Oh, uh, <laughs> thank you. Yes. Uh, I, you know, there are, there are places in Washington where you can actually display that and other places <laughs> where you might not want to. Um, uh, send those uh, suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, sometimes I tweet out uh, my ideas for stories and sometimes I don't. This week I didn't, sorry. Uh, but if you subscribe to at Stuart Baker on Twitter, you can uh, uh, see whether I'm uh, uh, swamped by other work or actually focusing on the podcast. And I'm sure Stuart will put the link to our report in the podcast Absolutely. Listing. It'll be in the show notes uh, for sure. Uh, uh, and uh, um, uh uh, in exchange, Mika is going to go on the site and rate the show. Give us five stars. <laughs> it's great. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, you can you can leave as um, it, it needs to be entertaining, but it doesn't need to be a nice uh, review as long as we get the five stars. And if it's uh, entertaining, I will read it no matter how bad it uh, is. Uh, I, we're going to have uh, Representative Jim Langevin on to talk about uh, his rice recent work on cyber issues in Congress uh, uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, uh, show credits, uh, Lori Paul and Christy Jorge are our producers. Doug Pickett is our ed audio engineer. Michael Beaver is our invaluable in turn, I'm Stuart Baker, your occasionally humble and uh, sometimes inquisitive hopes. That's a reference to a, uh, a review on uh, uh, iTunes, I think, if you want to know what that's about. You're going to have to go to the reviews, uh, and while you're filling out one for us, you can read the others. Uh, we hope you'll join us next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.